VCY America presents Crosstalk, a nationwide call-in program discussing issues that have an effect on our families, our communities, our churches, our nation, and our world. Crosstalk, an opportunity for you to voice your concerns for biblical principles. And now live by satellite and around the world on the Internet at vcyamerica.org. Here is today's Crosstalk. VCY has held rallies for over 50 years. Featuring guest speakers such as Ken Ham, Pastor Erwin Lutzer, the late Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, Patch the Pirate, and many, many more. But in the fall of 2023, VCY listeners in several states met with us out on the road. With VCY rallies traditionally being held in southeast Wisconsin, VCY headquarters, this time we loaded up the bus and quite possibly visited your city or one near you. Our guest speaker was William J. Federer. Bill is the radio host of the American Minute, also a nationally known speaker and best-selling author. Best of all, he is our brother in Christ. Today, we begin the first of two days of broadcast bringing you most, if not all, of Bill's presentation Silence equals consent. We'll say here at the outset to take some notes, but we will warn you of your soon writer's cramp. (laughs) So much important information, life-changing information, and we want to get this out. So let's get started. We will be back to visit more here shortly. Recorded live at Trail Ridge Camp in Hillsboro, Wisconsin, here's Bill Federer. Tonight, I'm going to talk about the founding of America, but maybe from a different angle that you may not have thought of before. So do you know what the most common form of government is in world history? It's gangs. So if tomorrow there was no police, everything would be fine for a couple days until people realized they could rob the store and not get caught. And then they would raid the stores. And then when they were empty, they'd start going house to house and farm to farm. And we would have to organize ourselves. And we'd find somebody that knew how to fight a little better than the rest. And we would say, you be our captain. And then the bad guys would find their worst guy and say, you be our bad captain. And before you know it, you're, you're back to gangs with a good gang and a bad gang. <laughs> and uh, so a, a, a gang leader is called the king. <laughs> Now, they go by different names, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsars, but it's power concentrating into the hands of one person. So the first story that we have of a gang turning into what we nicely call a civilization is Nimrod, Tower of Babel. And Josephus said Nimrod wanted to build a tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. So it had this defiant, in-your-face attitude toward God. And Nimrod made everyone bake bricks and bring them, or he would kill them. So it was defiant over God, oppressive over man. God comes down, confuses the languages, and the people scatter. The Tower of Babel was the first attempt at a one-world government, right? The population of the world was centered over there, and this was wanting to control those people. And so um, when God scattered them, they were into different language groups, And those language groups turned into nations. Nations was God's way to prevent a one-world government. (laughs) Right? And so now you have globalists that want to get rid of all the national boundaries, and they want to reconcentrate everything. But um, so we see that uh, every generation after Nimrod Tower of Babel has tried to rebuild the tower, in a sense. They would want to reconcentrate power. So you have... uh, Gilgamesh, king of Aruk, or Iraq, and he's the first one to build the wall around the city. And he, the oldest story ever written in any language, is the Epic of Gilgamesh. It was written a thousand years before Moses. And in this Epic of Gilgamesh, it talks about this old, old guy who uh, built a boat, covered it with tar and pitch, put all the animals in it, and uh, it says there was a global flood, and after the flood, repopulated the world. It's the story of Noah. Over a hundred ancient civilizations have flood stories in their ancient past. Gee, maybe there really was a flood. I believe there was. And then you have 2250 BC, Sargon of Acadia. And he conquers a bunch of walled cities from the Persian Gulf to the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean. 
or the Mediterranean rather. And then you have 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs, 5,000 years of Chinese emperors. In 700 BC, the king of Assyria had the biggest empire. And Nineveh was the capital, remember Jonah? And uh, Sennacherib, who took the 10 northern tribes of Israel captive. Well, that was the biggest empire, but it was conquered by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, which was conquered by Persia. Cyrus of Persia, he's the one that let the Jews go back and rebuild the temple. And then Persia is conquered by Alexander the Great. He's got the biggest empire. Uh, in 330 BC, he stopped from going into India. And Chandra Gupta of the Mara Empire has the biggest empire, a quarter of the world's population there in India. And then 2 BC, you have Augustus Caesar. He's got the biggest empire that planet Earth had ever seen to this point. He wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It was called the census. <laughs> that was new technology back then. If he could have had 5G and cell phones and cameras and face recognition software, he'd have been tempted to track people that way. And as these centuries go on, the kingdoms keep getting bigger. Because with military advancements, kings can kill more people. Right? Instead of Cain killing Abel with a rock, they can kill with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a big, long, phalanx spear the Greeks had, or a scimitar sword that the Muslims had, or gunpowder that the Chinese invented, or the stirrups that the Mongols invented, right? Or um, the uh, uh, drones and directed energy weapons and, and particle beams. I mean, and the weapon improves. But it's that same fallen nature, Cain, Kill, and Abel. It's just magnified. And, and as the centuries go on, you got the Askemite Empire in Africa, and then Attila the Hun, 450 A.D., he has an army of a half a million men. And he's wiping out cities across Europe, Mainz and Reims. And a young woman in Paris named Genevieve gets all of Paris to fast and pray. And Attila skips sacking Paris. So Genevieve is called the patron saint of Paris. And, um, and then you have the Byzantine Empire under Justinian. And then Islam comes along in the 7th century. And they conquer from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean. They capture Egypt, which used to be Christian, evangelized by Mark, that wrote the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Muslims conquer Syria, which used to be Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. The name Christian was first used in Syria. Then the Muslims conquered North Africa, which used to be Christian. St. Augustine of Hippo was from Carthage. Today, that's Tunisia. And then in the year 711, 80,000 Muslims invaded Spain, Spaniards were still fighting on foot. Muslims were on Arabian horses with stirrups. In 10 years, they conquer all of Spain. And they're stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours. And they're stopped by Charles Martel, whose grandson is Charlemagne. And Charlemagne controls 800 A.D. all of Europe. He's got the biggest empire. And then 1,000 A.D. Vikings. Boats with low keels go up every river in Europe and Russia. They've got the biggest empire. And then Genghis Khan in the 1200s. And he kills 30 million people from Korea to Hungary and Russia. His grandson's Kublai Khan running China. Tamerlane in the 1300s kills 17 million, controls all of Central Asia. Ivan the Terrible of Russia. And he, 12 time zones. Russia is enormous. And he kills 60,000 in Novgorod. And, and then you cross into this hemisphere and the same thing's happening. And you have Aztec Montezuma over the Mexican Empire. And they're capturing neighboring tribes, taking the captives to the tops of their pyramids and ripping their hearts out to the sun god and Atahualpa in Inca, Peru. And everybody in Peru was an employee slash slave of the state. And then the 1500s, the king of Spain has the biggest empire that planet Earth had ever seen to this point. Um, the Philippines are named after his son, King Philip of Spain. And then you got the 1600s France and the 1700s England, but we'll stop here because the Reformation starts. And so you have a situation in Europe that whatever the king believed, the kingdom had to believe. Remember Nebuchadnezzar blowing the trumpets? Unless you bow to my statue, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. He didn't ask him if they had a warm feeling in their heart for his statue. It's you bow, right? It's an outward in. And people out of fear, would they didn't love their, the statue, right? It was just out of fear you comply. And so you, whatever the king believes, the kingdom had to believe. Well, when the Reformation starts, you had kings with their kingdoms and you had populations inside of their kingdoms believing different things other than the king. And so in 1572, the 
king of Spain controlled the Netherlands and a bunch of people became Dutch reformed. And so the king of Spain sends the Iron Duke of Alba to Antwerp, Holland, and he commits the Spanish fury and he kills 10,000 Dutch reformed, leaves their bodies piled up in the street. And in 1572, about 10% of France is Huguenot Protestant. And the queen, Catherine de' Medici, decides to have a wedding with her daughter, Margaret, with the main Protestant leader, Henry of Navarre. The wedding's in Paris. A couple days after the wedding, she has her soldiers pull chains across the streets so the carriages cannot ride out of town. She sends her men house to house. They kill 30,000 of these Huguenot leaders and throw their bodies in the Seine River. It's called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And so you have a situation in Europe. What do you do with Romans 13? It's the scripture that says, let everyone be subject to the governing authority, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Yeah, but what if the authority literally has a mandate to kill your wife and kids? Are you supposed to submit to that? Okay, here they are, kill them. And so you had people called reformers and they protested. So they were nicknamed protestants, Protestants, because they were protesting. And so one reformer was John Calvin. And he wrote things like this. We are subject to the men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against him, let us not pay the least regard to it. In other words, there's a scripture in the Bible that says children obey your parents. But what if there is a bad parent that tells the kid to sell themselves into prostitution and kill the neighbor? Is the kid supposed to obey the parent and do that? No, the child obeys the parent as long as the parent is telling them to do something that lines up with God's word. In other words, you obey the government as long as the government is telling you to do something that lines up with God's word. Why would God tell you to do something in his word and then tell you to submit to a government that tells you not to do what he just got done telling you to do? And so it's very similar to Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail, 1963. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. One not only has a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. You are listening to Bill Federer's presentation, Silence Equals Consent. We are just getting started. I hope you're taking notes, but truly my hand gave out about 10 minutes ago. We will pick this back up right after this. Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris, geologist with the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, how are diamonds formed? Chris, diamonds are actually a crystalline form of carbon. It's thought that diamonds form deep inside the earth at unimaginable temperatures and pressures. Efforts to form diamonds synthetically require these extreme conditions. But evolutionists say it took billions of years to form them. But a recent breakthrough was able to form diamonds at much lower temperatures and pressures than before, and it only took about 12 hours. The product was virtually indistinguishable from natural diamonds. The lesson we can learn from this is it doesn't take long periods of time to accomplish geologic wonders. It just takes extreme conditions. The Bible speaks of just such a high-energy environment during the great flood of Noah's day. Our earth doesn't really look old. It looks flooded. And that's the back-to-Genesis way of thinking. Thanks, Dr. Morris. For more info on Genesis, visit us on the web at www.icr.org.
back now on VCY America and Crosstalk. Listening today to Bill Federer and his message, Silence Equals Consent, which we took out with Bill on tour in the fall of 2023. In the first segment, Bill covered, I don't know how many centuries of world history, from Nimrod in B.C. to finally pause at the Reformation in the 1500s. He did all of that in like 12 minutes. <laughs> this presentation is a treasure trove of information. And coming up, we will tell you how you can own the entire thing on DVD. Just before the break, Bill was teaching on the two types of laws in government. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. One not only has a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. So you submit to the government as long as it's lining up with the law of God. So these Calvinist Puritans in the 1500s began to develop a government without a king. It's called a covenant form of government. Everyone needed to be involved. Everybody has to agree to it. Everybody has to help participate in it. And it's a way that we can all rule ourselves without a king. And they got their idea from ancient Israel, that first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. So here you have most of the world history is kings, and one nation stands out, Israel. Around 1400 B.C., they come out of Egypt, where there were 2,000 years of pharaohs, and the Israelites come into the promised land, where there's King Agabashan and all these different kings. And for 400 years, Israel does not have a king. It's the first instance in world history of millions of people and no king. And it worked because every single citizen was taught the law and they were personally accountable to God to follow the law. Right? So you have an opportunity to steal. Nobody's around. And then you think, God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country believes this, you can maintain complete order with no police. This was ancient Israel. It was a covenant form of government that they all agreed to and they all participated in. So these Puritans got their idea from the Bible, what part of the Bible, this first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. It's called the Hebrew Republic. And it's the first instance where there's equality. Because wherever there's a king, if you're friends with the king, you're more equal. If you're not friends with the king, you're less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason. Or you're a slave. People say, I thought slavery started in 1619. No, wherever you had the first king on top, you had slaves on the bottom. And so ancient Israel, there was no king. And everybody's made in the image of the creator. And this creator is not a respecter of persons. Ancient Israel is the beginning of the concept of equality on planet Earth. And ancient Israel was the first place where you had private land ownership. Because wherever there is a king, you never really own the land. It is always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he'll take away the land and kill you. Ancient Israel was the first nation with no standing army. You have a king, he has an army. But in ancient Israel, every man was in the militia, armed with a sword upon their thigh, and ready at a moment's notice to defend their wife and kids and community. And ancient Israel was the first nation that could read. Did you know only 1% of Egypt could read? 
Reading and writing was the scribe's secret knowledge. They kept the hieroglyphs complicated on purpose as job security. And uh, 3,000 hieroglyphs. Imagine trying to teach those to your kids, right? When Moses comes down the mountain, he does not just have the law. He has the law in a 22-character alphabet. First letter's a left, second letter Beth. So easy to learn. Kids could learn it. Ancient Israel was the first nation on planet Earth where everybody could read, right? And so instead of top-down rule by kings, it's bottom-up where the people rule themselves in a covenant with God. And so the Puritans that studied this were nicknamed Christian Hebraists. And they were James Harrington and John Sadler, whose sister Anne Sadler married John Harvard. And so they taught Hebrew at Harvard. Yale, on its coat of arms, to this day has Hebrew characters, truth and light. And so in a sense, King Saul is the divider between England and America. You say, King Saul, he was like thousands of years right, earlier. The kings of England looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the anointed King Saul and on period. The Calvinist Puritans that founded New England, they looked to the pre-King Saul period. There's 400 years of Israel out of Egypt with no king. So God's original plan was to not have a king. Everybody be taught the law. Everybody own private property. Everybody be armed. Everybody be educated. Teach their kids to read. Until the priest stopped teaching the law. And it says, every man did what was right in their own eyes. And Eli, the high priest, his own sons are sleeping with women in the very tent where the Ark of the Covenant is. And another Levite has a silver graven image in the house of a guy named Micah. And you're like, isn't that one of the commandments? You're not supposed to have graven images. And then there's another Levite with a concubine. The law says the Levite is to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with the woman he's not even married to. So he's not following the law. And the poor girl gets raped to death by a bunch of sodomites. Something about that behavior that appears at the last stages of a people ruling themselves, this casting off of self-restraint, this abandonment to passion. And that's when they all go to Samuel the prophet. They say this self-government system's not working anymore. We want to be like the other countries. We want a king. Samuel cries and the Lord tells him, they did not reject you, they rejected me. Right? So God's original plan for ancient Israel was to not have a king, have everybody be taught the law. And it worked for 400 years And that's what the Calvinist Puritans looked to for a model of their covenant form of government where you could have millions of people and no king if everybody's taught the law and accountable to God to follow it. Does that make sense? So in this covenant model, you get blessings from God and you voluntarily share them with your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. It's not socialism where the government takes away your stuff and gives it to its supporters, right? So Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. The word church in Greek is ekklesia. E-K means out of. Ecclesia means a calling. And so 6,000 citizens in Athens, and they would be called out of their homes to the marketplace, and they would decide what needs to be done for the city. We need to fix the walls. We've got to get our Navy going. We need to take care of the kids. We need to do this. And they would divvy up responsibilities. We need somebody to fix the potholes in the road. And, and so in this reformer congregational model, the pastor's job was to teach everyone how to have a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ that died on the cross to pay for their sins. And then the pastor coaches each person to become a mature Christian. You get in the habit of reading through the Bible for yourself. You get in the habit of praying every day. And then you plug into the body and do something. Nursery, junior high, children's church, outreach. Why? Because everything that's alive takes in and gives out. For every muscle to grow, it has to be exercised. You don't just hear a sermon. You hear a sermon and be filled with the Holy Spirit, and put yourself in a position where there is a need. And then the Holy Spirit will use you to meet the need. 
And as you do that, he that's faithful in the very little shall be entrusted with more. You grow in your Christian maturity. And so uh, we've all been there, right? So when somebody uh, is, has a need, maybe they're discouraged and you're talking to them and you find yourself saying some really wise things and you, and, and you see that it's encouraging them and you're thinking to yourself, that's pretty good stuff. And then it's like, no, no, it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through you to this person, right? The Holy Spirit knows what they need to hear and it gives you the words. And then maybe you have some money and there's a person with a need and you give them something and you see this, thank you, thank you, this joy. And then you feel this joy on the inside where the Holy Spirit's like applauding you on the inside, like, all oh, right, you did it, right? The uh, king didn't like that. The king didn't like the congregational model. Uh, he liked the hierarchical model of church government. It's called clergy laity. The clergy does all the ministry and the laity is lazy and watches. You watch somebody else do all the ministry and you're just like a spectator, right? And, um, and so this clergy laity model, uh, this is why I did not like the COVID response so much because the COVID response was changing church structure. Instead of getting the body of Christ together and ministering to each other, where somebody is, you know, an eye, an ear, a foot, everybody's doing something, and the older lady sees the younger mom, and she looks a little frazzled, and what's wrong, honey? Well, the kids, and the sick, and the job, and the, and then uh, the ministry takes place. And then the older man sees the younger man and says, hey, we're having a men's Bible study. Why don't you come in? And it, it's all taking place without the pastor having to organize everything. He just gets the body together and the ministry. His job is to teach them to have a relationship with God, coach them so that they know how to grow in the Lord by reading the Bible. But the COVID response was, uh, stop meeting together. Just listen to a really good sermon on your screen. And it's like, well, you can hear the best sermon in the world you're taking in, but you can't give out. What are you going to witness to your pillow? You know, nice pillow. <laughs> no. And so uh, the King James talked to, said to these Calvinist Puritans, and now they, their congregational form of church government took different names. And some were called Baptists, and some were called Congregationalists, and some were called Presbyterians, right? Uh, they would have conventicles in Scotland. And it comes from the word covenant, where two or three are gathered in my name. I'm there in the midst. And they would say, no bishop, no king. And we don't want to, the king would rule through these. And so the king didn't like that. And King James said, I will harry them out of the land. He says, I will make them conform themselves or I'll harry them out of the land. And then, of course, some of these congregational groups were also called Quakers. Right. And so we see all these different groups, but it's the body getting together. And it's a bottom up type thing. So Bill Federer, here teaching, silence equals consent. I don't know about you, but I learned several things just these past 12, 13 minutes. And we're only halfway through the first day. God willing, tomorrow we will have broadcast the entire message. But even better is for you to own a DVD of this teaching. It is available when you call during normal business hours, one 800 You can also visit vcy.org. Back in a minute. There is no heartache equal to that of losing a loved one to suicide. Unanswered questions, despair, and perhaps self-blame can leave those behind with feelings of hopelessness. But true hope and help can be found in Christ alone. In the booklet Hope Beyond Despair, author Julie Gossick shares from personal experience how the truth of Scripture and the hope of the gospel can bring comfort to those who are living in the aftermath of suicide. She addresses what the Bible has to say on this issue and provides a lasting hope based on biblical principles. The book Hope Beyond Despair is available from VCY for a donation of $6.00 or three copies for a donation of $15. Just ask for Hope Beyond Despair when you call with your gift at 1-800-729-9829. You may also write VCY America, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208.
This is Crosstalk on the VCY America Radio Network. This is also day one of two, sharing the message, silence equals consent, from William J. Federer, the message from the 2023 VCY Fall Rally Tour. We will pick back up now with Bill sharing the importance of God's people everywhere being together, His church reaching the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. But the COVID response was, uh, stop meeting together. Just listen to a really good sermon on your screen. And it's like, well, you can hear the best sermon in the world you're taking in, but you can't give out. What are you going to witness to your pillow? You know, nice pillow. <laughs> no. And so uh, the King James talked to, said to these Calvinist Puritans, and now they, their congregational form of church government took different names. And some were called Baptists. And some were called Congregationalists. And some were called Presbyterians, right? Uh, they would have conventicles in Scotland. And it comes from the word covenant, where two or three are gathered in my name. I'm there in the midst. And they would say, no bishop, no king. And we don't want to, the king would rule through these. And so the king didn't like that. And King James said, I will harry them out of the land. He says, I will make them conform themselves or I'll harry them out of the land. And then, of course, some of these congregational groups were also called Quakers, right? And so we see all these different groups, but it's the body getting together. And it's a bottom-up type thing. So these separatists, these pilgrims, flee from England to Holland. And then when Spain threatens to attack the Netherlands, they flee again to America. They were going to go to Virginia and submit to the king's government. But they get blown off course to Massachusetts. And they try sailing south, but off the coast of Cape Cod, it's really shallow. The sand goes way out, and 3,000 ships have sunk off the coast of Cape Cod. And so the pilgrims almost sink. And the captain says, it's too dangerous. We're not going to make it to Virginia. He goes back to Plymouth Rock and says, everyone off the boat. And they have a question. They said, okay, uh, there's 102 of us on the boat. And who's going to be in charge of us? There's no king appointed person in our little group. The whole world's ruled by kings. We're, we, everybody, we need somebody to tell us what to do. What are we going to do? There's no king appointed person in our group. They do something unique they give themselves the authority to start a government. It's called the Mayflower Compact. It says, we, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. They take their covenant form of church government, and in this emergency, they make it their civil body politic, their political form of government, right? You have a church group forming itself into a political group. Now, why did they do that? To enact just and equal laws, as shall be thought most meet or necessary. But it was a polarity change in the flow of power on planet Earth. Instead of top-down, ruled by kings and pharaohs and Caesars who rule by fear, it's bottom-up, ruled by we. It's the difference between a dead pyramid ruled top-down and a living tree, where every root and every tiny capillary root sucks in nutrients to keep the tree alive. Everybody has to agree to be a part. Everybody has to participate. It's the difference between divine right of kings, do what I tell you and I got an army, uh, or we the people. The pilgrim pastor John Robinson said, we are knit together as a body in covenant of the Lord tied to care for each other's good. Puritan leader John Winthrop, this love among Christians is a real thing necessary to the body of Christ. We ought to account ourselves knit together by this bond of love. We must make one another's condition our own. Rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us. And so it's like a prayer meeting. But you, and you pray for people in the prayer meeting, but you take it the next step. You pray and you commit. It's like, okay, I'm going to be there for you. We're, right? You are family. We're... And so Os Guinness said, covenantal ideas in England were the lost cause, but they became the winning cause in New England. Covenant-shaped constitutionalism. 
the American Constitution is a nationalized, secularized form of covenant. Covenant lies behind Constitution. And the word federal is Latin for covenant. We have a covenant form of government in America where we rule ourselves without a king. And so the word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. You're a citizen of America? You're a co-ruler. You're a co-sovereign. You're a co-king. And so the king of England turns up the heat and 20,000 Puritans flee in the great Puritan migration to Massachusetts. And you have a unique situation where pastors and their churches are founding cities. And so you have a pastor, John Lothrop, and his church founding Barnstable, Massachusetts. A pastor, Roger Williams, and his church founded Providence, Rhode Island, and the First Baptist Church in America. Reverend John Wheelwright and his church founded Exeter, New Hampshire. Pastor Thomas Hooker and his church founded Hartford, Connecticut. This was unique on planet Earth. At this time, you have Indian Maharajas, Japanese emperors, Chinese emperors, Russian czars, Muslim sultans, African chieftains, kings of Spain, France, and Austria, the world's kings. And here you have pastors and their churches founding cities and coming up with the laws. You see, North America didn't have gold like Central and South America. And they lost money. And so we were sort of like a bother. And the king of England was like, just don't bother me and cost me any money. Europe's the chessboard. And for a century, they were focusing on all that. And America got to rule itself just because it was like, just stay out of my hair. And, you know, and we developed a century of how we can rule ourselves through this covenant form of government. And so let's look at Thomas Hooker and his church founded Hartford. And his church members come to him and say, Pastor, can you preach a sermon on how we're supposed to set up our government. He gives a sermon in 1638 titled, The Foundation of Authority is Laid in the Free Consent of the People. This is reflected in our declaration, government from the consent of the governed. And this is different from Europe because the kings in Europe did not ask the people for their consent. Can you imagine the king saying, "Uh, please, can I do this? No, it's, I got an army, and I'm going to rule through fear, and I'm going to do... His sermon goes on. The privilege of election belongs to the people. This is reflected in our Constitution. We, the people. His sermon is written down. It's called The Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, and it is the Constitution of Connecticut from 1639 up until 1818. Connecticut is using Pastor Thomas Hooker's sermon as its constitution. That's why Connecticut's called the Constitution State. Here's a plaque in England. Thomas Hooker, founder of the state of Connecticut, father of American democracy. Another plaque, Thomas Hooker, Puritan clergyman, reputed father of American democracy. Democracy is where a small group can meet, and there's only a small group there in Connecticut. His sermon, uh, is, there's a statue of Thomas Hooker on the old Capitol grounds in Hartford, and he's holding a Bible. At the base of the statue, it says, leading his people through the wilderness, he founded Hartford. On this site, he preached the sermon, which inspired the fundamental orders. It was the first written constitution that created a government. Another plaque it says, here ministered, 1633-36, Thomas Hooker, a peerless leader in New England thought in life in both church and state. Here you have a pastor preaching about church stuff and state stuff. Here's another plaque. It says Thomas Hooker, a leader, preacher, statesman who based all civil authority on the free consent of the people. This was such a big deal, they chiseled it in stone. 6,000 years of history, Pharaohs, Nimrods, Caesars, Kaisers, Sultans, Tsars, ruling through, through fear, and the weapons improve, they can get bigger empires. Their technology improves, they can keep track of more people. It's all top down. And then you come with his pastors, taking this covenant form of church government, and they're saying, no, nothing happens unless we give our consent. It's a bottom-up form of government. Another plaque. It says, uh, here, 
ministered uh, or preached Thomas Hooker, his famous sermon, The Foundation of Authority, is laid in the free consent of the people. And then near this site, representatives of the people adopt his sermon as the fundamental orders. What do the fundamental orders say? The people can join ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth. Who are the people? It's the church members. So again, you have a church group conjoining itself into a public state. Very similar to the pilgrims. A church group forming itself into a civil body politic. Now, why did they do this? To preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which we now profess. They picked the form of government that would best preserve the preaching of the gospel. Another plaque This one says Thomas Hooker's congregation established the form of government upon which the present Constitution of the United States is modeled. Do you grasp the significance of this? America started as a church plant, (laughs) a congregational church government that became the civil government that became our Constitution, we the people. So in New England, instead of separation of church and state, it was the pastors and their churches that created the state. How could you say, pastor, don't preach on politics? When it's the pastor's sermon, that's their constitution. How could you say church members don't get involved in politics when all there was in Hartford was the church members? Polis is the Greek word for city. Indianapolis, Minneapolis, politics is the business of the city. And all there was in the city of Hartford was the church members. Everybody's involved in church. Everybody's involved in the community. And so they had one building called a meeting house. That's where the pastor would teach the Bible and that's where they would gather together and do their city business. The word synagogue means meeting house. That's where the rabbi would teach the law and that's where they would gather together and do their city business. I mean, why build a separate building just to talk about a different topic? And so when the Revolutionary War started, the British sent over a military governor, Thomas Gage, and he outlawed meeting houses. Democracy is too prevalent in America. We don't need the people meeting and giving their consent to stuff. You just obey government mandates. If there's an executive order from the guy at the top, if there's a mandate, you just obey. You're a zombie. You're a robot. And America's founder said, we have a century under our belt of nothing happening unless we give our consent to it. And so you saw this top down versus this bottom up, right? And the bottom up won and it turned into America. (laughs) So what I just explained was the 1600s and these were Puritans and they had an amazing covenant plan where everybody was involved. Everybody had to agree to it. Everybody participated in it. Everybody was involved in church. Everybody was involved in the community. And after a century, it got a little dry. It became only a plan to some. And so these were nicknamed old lights. And some said that God has it so planned out that he already planned who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, so don't even bother sharing the gospel with anybody. Right, And so in the 1700s, you had the new lights. And these were German pietists. And they said, it's more than a plan. You have to have a personal experience with Jesus. For the Worldview Report, I'm Brandon House. Our website is worldviewreport.com. Well, many American Christians are in shock. That is, those that know about the story. The tragic story of a church preacher, an evangelist on the street in Arizona, preaching the gospel, shot in the head last week. Many are praying for his survival as he's in critical condition, but it brings to the forefront the issue of Christian persecution, not just in other places, but now here in America. As we are on the verge of celebrating Thanksgiving, that in part was about the pilgrims coming to America for religious liberty and freedom and to teach the Ten Commandments and the Bible to their children, we're finding America to be a place that is hostile to Christians that proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ alone. As we see the rise of Sharia and Marxism, Islamic law and Marxism, the persecution of Christians is going to greatly increase. 
Final segment for Crosstalk today. Sharing the presentation, silence equals consent. We're finally getting down to the heart of the message. So what I just explained was the 1600s. And these were Puritans. And they had an amazing covenant plan where everybody was involved. Everybody had to agree to it. Everybody participated in it. Everybody was involved in church. Everybody was involved in the community. And after a century, it got a little dry. It became only a plan to some. And so these were nicknamed old lights. And some said that God has it so planned out that he already planned who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, so don't even bother sharing the gospel with anybody. Right? And so in the 1700s, you had the new lights. And these were German pietists, and they said it's more than a plan. You have to have a personal experience with Jesus. And when you do, your life will change. And you won't do worldly things you used to do, like go to bars and brothels and lewd theater and get involved in government. Wait, what was that last thing? Yeah, government, it's worldly. If you're really a Christian, you won't be involved in government. We just preach the gospel at our church, and, and you're, you're still carnal. We're, we've reached a little bit higher spiritual level because we're not involved. It's like, where did that idea come from? It came from the pietists in the 1700s. It did not come from the Calvinist Puritans in the 1600s. Because theirs were like, everybody got to be involved. We can rule ourselves without a king. Everybody has to be involved. In the 1700s, no, 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 don't, don't get involved. It's worldly. And so let's see where the pietists came from. So in 1517, Martin Luther started the Reformation because he had a personal experience with Jesus that the just shall live by faith. So personal, he was willing to stand up to the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, and say, unless you can prove me wrong from Scripture, here I stand, so help me God. It was very personal to Martin Luther. But some German princes want to break from Rome. And they said, this is my chance, kingdom of mine. I just decided you're all Lutherans. And the people in the kingdom say, okay, okay, we're Lutheran. Uh, What do we believe? And so for the people in the kingdoms, it's not necessarily the same personal experience that Martin Luther had. So it's just a doctrine that the state has. And so a revival movement starts called pietism that said being a Christian is more than state doctrine. You have to have an experience with Jesus. And they sparked revival. There was a group of Germans in Moravia, which in Germany borders the Czech Republic, led by Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And they, a fascinating story. He's 19 years old. Uh, he's a, his dad died, and so he's raised by his pietist grandmother, and he's royalty. So he's going on his grand tour to meet all the who's who in the courts across Germany. And he's in Dusseldorf. And he goes to a museum and he sees a painting of Christ with a crown of thorns. And underneath it says, all this I have done for you. What are you doing for me? And he kept thinking about that. And he goes back to his estate and he decides he's going to open up his estate for all these persecuted Christians across Europe to come and they can live on his land and not be persecuted. And so they all come. It's all great until they start bickering amongst each other. And he goes down amongst them. He says, we need to have a communion service. And they forgive each other and they pray all night, all day, all night. Then they take turns with the kids and the family and the farm. They pray all week, all month, all year. That prayer meeting went on uninterrupted for over 100 years. And these Moravian German pietist missionaries went to India, Australia. They went all around the world. They went to Egypt, to Suriname, to Iceland. And some of them went to Georgia. And when they came to Georgia on the boat, that, that were the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley. They're in a storm. The boat almost sinks. Wesleys see these Moravians, and they're just praising the Lord like nothing's, nothing's wrong. And he's like panicking. He says, the wave was so big, we thought we were shoved to the bottom of the ocean, and they're just singing praise songs. And the Wesleys are like, you guys have a personal experience with Jesus that I don't have. The Wesleys sort of fail in Georgia, go back to England. They meet another Moravian who invites them to a prayer meeting in Aldersgate, And John Wesley said, I went very unwillingly to this prayer meeting. And then he says, but they were explaining Luther's epistle to the Romans. And when he explained the change that happens in someone's heart when they have faith in Christ, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. John Wesley had a personal experience with Jesus. He goes over and lives with these German Moravians for eight months, calls it the religion of the heart, comes back to England, and he starts a revival movement called Methodism, saying, look, it's more than Anglican doctrine. You have to have an experience with Jesus. And he gets his friend George Whitfield involved. And George Whitfield preaches up and down the colonies seven times in America, each time going through a different route. So like 90% of the country heard George Whitfield. And what did he preach? It's more than doctrine. You have to have an experience with Jesus, which is tremendous. But the byproduct was once you have this experience, you're going to withdraw. You're going to be holy and set apart from the world. And to some, that meant also set apart from being involved in the government. So it turned into the two kingdom concept, the kingdom of the church, the kingdom of the government, the two don't touch. And four centuries of that allowed Hitler to put Jews on train cars. And they're going past the church, crying for help. And the church's response was, well, that's the government doing it, not, uh, not the church. And so we can't get involved in government stuff because we're the church and the two don't touch. So, so let's just sing praise songs louder. It's like, can anybody see there's something wrong with that picture? And so recapping, we have kings for most of world history. And then you have these Puritans with a great good plan that we can rule ourselves without a king. But bad, it became so plan focused, it became dry. I mean, David Brainerd was expelled from Yale because he said his professor was as spiritual as a chair. You read the Yale writings, the students were reprimanded because they went into the nearby town of New Haven and were presenting the gospel to strangers on the street. And that was considered irreverent. You're supposed to present the gospel wearing the the black robe in the church, and here you are just talking to people in the street. And and so they were reprimanded. I mean, they weren't like smashing windows and setting things on fire and like tearing down statues or anything. No, they were. (laughs) And so these were called old lights. But then you have the 1700s, the new lights. It's good. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it, it had the bad side, and that was so personal, it was only personal. And all you did was care about your own relationship with God, and you didn't care what kind of country you're leaving your kids. The thought is, why can't it be both? You want to be involved in government. Why? So you can have a country where your kids can have a personal experience with Jesus. Both. The freedom to serve Christ and to encourage others to as well. What a concept. But in our politically correct culture, we're so often left keeping the good news to ourselves. Bill Federer contends, our silence equals consent. We'll have more tomorrow. Get this DVD. You've been listening to Crosstalk via satellite and the Internet from VCY America. Views expressed may or may not be those of this station. For a CD of today's program, send a donation of $6 or more to VCY Tape Ministry, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208. Or download by RSS or podcast from CrosstalkAmerica.com. And join us again for Crosstalk. Crosstalk.